Hello honeys and welcome to our 10th episode in total, our third in the Art History Myths series, and our final one for this year of 2023. I hope you are having a wonderful holiday season, whatever it is you choose to celebrate. Hope that your celebrations have been enjoyable, restorative, and full of friends and family. I know mine have. Today we are discussing, as I said, the last myth in our three-part series here, the myth of madness, the myth of poor mental health leading to artistic greatness. This myth goes by many names. It's most commonly referred to as the quote-unquote tortured or quote-unquote suffering artist trope. And in order to understand what's really going on here, we're going to get into some famous examples of suffering artists, as well as some studies that shine a more clear light on the relationships between mental health and artistic activities, creativity, one might say. So without further ado, here we go. As always, we are starting with sources as good academics and scholars here. We've got Eliza Allen's Mad Artist, The Correlation Between Madness and Genius, under a blog called Connect with Art, published in August of 2021. Callum Armitage's Van Gogh and Romanticizing the Tortured Artist, an article in Postscript, issue 19, from March of 2019. Yashi Banimadub's The Tortured Artist is a Dangerous Myth, It's the Way Creative Workers Are Treated That Causes Breakdown, published by Independent Magazine in October of 2018. William Cook's The Real Van Gogh, A Genius Not Driven by Madness But Crippled by It, published by the BBC in July of 2016. The Art Stories uh, page Edward Munch, which did not unfortunately have a date nor a Byline, however, I have found them to be a reliable resource throughout the majority of my schooling, and so I went ahead and, you know, went with them anyway. We also have an article from Barnaby's titled Edward Munch, Five Facts to Know Without a Byline, but published in August of 2020. Lizzie Ellis's Tortured Artist Myth, Research Links Well-Being with Creativity, published by Goldsmiths, University of London, in September of 2022. Stephanie Graff's How Mental Illness Shaped the Works of These Five Artists in The Collector, from September of 2021. The homepage of the organization for Edward Munch's uh, legacy, essentially. Naomi Nea's A Mystery Inscription on the Screen that Baffled Experts for Decades was written by Edvard Munch himself, new research shows from Artnet.com in February 2021. Jack Neath's The Tortured Artist Trope from Medium Magazine in February 2023. Daniela Neary's Ten Artists Between Genius and Madness from Barnaby's Magazine, June 2021. Vincent Van Gogh's The Myth of the Tortured Artist. Unfortunately, no byline on that one, but published by Barnaby's Magazine in March of 2023. Rosemary Woff's The Enduring Connection Between Art and Mental Health, published by Art UK in November of 2020. And finally, Christopher Zara's The Myth of the Tortured Artist and Why It's Not a Myth in the Huffington Post from October of 2012. A couple of quick clarifications here. 
This is a myth that goes by many names, though it is most commonly referred to as either the myth of madness or as the quote-unquote tortured or quote-unquote suffering artist trope. All of these names, though, refer to the same thing, the idea that the best artists suffer severely from mental illness, which often leads to the social perception that one must be mentally ill as something of a requirement for artistic greatness. Neath sums up this character pretty succinctly, saying, quote, the sometimes misunderstood genius who turns their pain into art using frustrations with the world and their life as a tool to create the ultimate masterpieces, end quote. Some of the earliest examples date back actually to Greek philosophers. Aristotle once famously said, quote, no great genius has ever existed without a strain of madness, end quote, and Plato was once caught saying that divine madness is a gift from the gods. This is true across the world, though, this perception. Neath notes in his discussion of the issue that Indian psychologists have long documented the popular belief in that nation that suffering increases creativity, which helps heal that same suffering. Though this perception has clearly been around for a long, long time, later and most famous examples act as the perpetuators of the myth and the sort of standard for madness these days. One of the perpetuators just by means of his life story that we can talk about here is Edvard Munch. He was a Norwegian expressionist painter living 1863 to 1944 and is by far the most famous for his work, The Scream. Interestingly, though, despite his checkered reputation, he was insanely generous. After his death, all of his works were not given to his family, but rather to the Norwegian government, making up a total of 15,400 prints, 4,500 drawings and watercolor art, and six sculptures. So these were all donated to the Oslo government and were used for many years as display pieces in multiple locations. The government later redistributed these works and put the majority of them in the Munch Museum of Art when they opened it in the 1950s. Munch was a controversial figure not only professionally but personally, and he became associated with a sort of weirdness in both aspects of his life. As the art story puts it, quote, Edvard Munch was a prolific yet perpetually troubled artist, preoccupied with matters of human mortality such as chronic illness, sexual liberation, and religious aspiration. He expressed these obsessions through works of intense color, semi-abstraction, and mysterious subject matter, end quote. So there's lots of kind of Freudian sexual subject matter in his works, and that's probably because he believed in sex as a sort of tool for personal liberation from the expectations of society, a sort of freedom from conformity. On a more technical note, he was very controversial as an artist 
because he used elements of Art Nouveau, which is well known for organic forms and having a sense of kind of wonder or mystery in a much more surrealist way. So he didn't use the forms and techniques of Art Nouveau as decorative elements, unlike many of his contemporaries and practitioners of that style, but rather incorporated them as symbols or expressions of psychological phenomena. In other words, he got too real with human psychology, and people were uncomfortable with it. It would be dishonest to not acknowledge that there is evidence that Munch's poor mental health did at times show up in his artworks. As Barnaby says, quote, At the start of the 20th century, he suffered from severe alcohol problems and mental illness, which prompted him to seek professional help, end quote. He likely suffered from depression, anxiety, and schizophrenia, and it is true that mental illness ran in his family, making some such diagnosis all the more likely. However, there are other instances where more specific potential explanations for why his images are so emotionally evocative and so disturbing are reasonable. One, for example, is that the deaths of his mother in 1868 and his sister in 1877 at young ages, plus his father's pessimistic explanations that these deaths were a divine punishment, set Munch on a very melancholy and mortality-obsessed path from a very early age, according to Art Story. In fact, Barnaby's goes on to say that, quote, the source of inspiration for Munch's work, The Sick Child, was his sister, Sophie, who died of tuberculosis in 1877. About seven years later, Munch painted the first version of The Sick Child, which was followed by three more paintings that took up the melancholic subject matter, end quote. That being said, he also had other influences as well. As the Edward Munch organization points out, he was very influenced by Sigmund Freud, who was a close contemporary. And as we know, Freud was a psychologist who thought that everything could be explained by childhood experiences, penis envy, and also our desires to screw our parents. So it's not surprising that if any of that was incorporated into Munch's work, that that may have been a little off-putting for his audiences. As I mentioned, The Scream is Munch's most famous recognizable work and has become something of a pop culture icon. However, the painting is also a great embodiment. Its story is a great embodiment of how exactly the sort of disturbed psychology that appears from that image was assigned back to Munch. So a bit of background info on this work. It is actually officially called The Cry and is painted in multiple mediums on cardboard. The 1895 version held the title of the most expensive piece of art in the world for a year 
after selling for $120 million at a Sotheby's auction. And the most fascinating fact in my mind, two of the four versions have been stolen and returned. The 1893 version was stolen from the National Gallery in Oslo in 1994, and 10 years later, in 04, the 1910 version was stolen from the Munch Museum. And don't worry, I'm already researching for an episode on this. We're going to find out what happened there. Because of its composition, the scream is often considered to be uh, an image that depicts fear and psychological disturbance like to a T. It is an image of a man, two hands on his cheeks, eyes wide, screaming apparently at the viewer in front of a blood red sunset that has darkened the features of the bridge he's standing on into near black. It is such a striking image of a combination of terror and maybe anger and shock that it's no surprise that viewers would assume that the artist had to have experienced some sort of emotional combination like this in order to portray such a thing so effectively. However, that's not entirely what happened. Rather than depicting his own scream, his own state of mind, Munch was instead attempting to depict the emotion of nature that he believed he was experiencing in a very unique moment in time. Art Story tells their own story that, quote, the setting of the scream was suggested to the artist by a walk along a road overlooking the city of Oslo. Apparently, Munch's arrival at, or departure from, a mental hospital where his sister, Laura Catherine, had been interned. It is unknown whether the artist observed an actual person in anguish, but this seems unlikely, as Munch later recalled, quote, I was walking down the road with two friends when the sun set suddenly the sky turned as red as blood i stopped and leaned against the fence shivering with fear then i heard the enormous infinite scream of nature and all quotes so maybe the image has less to do with munch's own uh, emotions and is more connected to the exploration of one's sense of emotion in comparison to the grandness of nature, uh, a sort of attempt at describing nature's own emotions, or something equally vague and abstract like that. Though it is iconic for its drama, color palette, and so on, in many ways, The Scream has also become an icon of the mad artist myth because, again, the emotions of the Screamer are assigned to the artist. The story gets deeper and juicier, however, though, when we notice that, according to Neri, the inscription, quote, could only have been painted by a madman on Munch's famous painting, The Scream of 1893, 
is, according to a recent discovery by experts, by his own hand, end all quotes. Enea has some thoughts about what exactly is going on there. Though experts were long aware of this inscription, it only recently was confirmed that he wrote it by infrared and handwriting analysis. There was doubt about its authorship because it was added in 1893 after the work's completion, and also because such an inscription would have been unthinkable for an artist to write them about themselves at that time. Curator Mai Britt Gulang says, quote, This inscription is not an explanation about the motif as in other cases. This is a comment about the painter's mental health, something an art critic would never expect an artist himself to make. End quote. The inscription is more than likely a response to the highly critical reception that the Scream got upon its first exhibition in Munch's home country. Munch was very hurt and upset by this rejection and by the speculation on his mental health by his contemporaries that the work inspired. As Gulling says, quote, Munch was a complex person and the reason why he wrote it is probably just as complex. He wanted to provoke, but he also wanted to be respected. It was important for him to take control of the story to the public. End quote. Next up, we have none other than Van Gogh, the man, the myth, the legend. What a superbly featured man and what excellent artworks he made. Many years since I've had such an exemplary tortured artist. He is the fair artist to which we should compliment the perpetuation of that myth. It's Christmas, I'm making whatever references I want, and that means Pride and Prejudice, deal with it. Anyway, Van Gogh was also a Dutch artist, though he was a post-impressionist, who lived from 1853 to 1890. A thing that even I didn't know was he only decided to pursue art in 1880, after bouncing from job to job his whole life, including briefly preaching and also working with his father's art dealing company. Many of his most famous works were completed after his move to Arles, the French countryside, in 1888, and he died at age 37 from a self-inflicted gunshot after years of mental illness and of poverty. It must be said, there is a reason that Van Gogh is the most famous suffering or tortured artist. It is true, he was not well. As Graf says, he voluntarily entered an asylum, the St. Paul de Mausol, in 1889 because of his mental health problems and produced actually several artworks while he was there in the facility. In fact, The Starry Night of 1887, one of his most famous artworks, was inspired by a nearby landscape, you know, to that asylum. Many other of his famous landscapes were similarly inspired by views from the building. In 2016, a symposium of experts on Van Gogh uh, gathered at his museum in Amsterdam and determined that he likely suffered psychotic episodes, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, and that he suffered alcoholism. 
As Cook summarizes it, quote, In all likelihood, Van Gogh's insanity was the result of several factors. There was some history of mental health problems in the family. He'd been unstable from an early age. Syphilis may have played a part. His brother, Theo, died of syphilis six months later. And his heavy drinking did not help, end quote. All that said, however, the infamous stories of his ear cutting, of his suicide, and of other obsessive or violent incidents were exaggerated to meet and promote the tortured artist stereotype. Generally speaking, Cook goes on to say, most of the time, Van Gogh was sane, lucid, understood the present moment. He worked nonstop between his mental health episodes, but when he was in the middle of them, he was unable to be productive artistically at all. So clearly, madness did not help him as an artist. Says curator of the exhibition On the Verge of Insanity, Van Gogh and His Illness at the Van Gogh Museum, Nike Baker, quote, A lot of people think his art was a product of his illness. He painted in spite of his illness, end quote. A little true and false about that whole ear thing. He himself did cut the whole thing off with a razor in December of 1888. These facts completely contradict a couple of claims. First, of his friends at the time that he only cut off the lobe. They possibly said this to try and reduce the severity of the incident in the eyes of the public. It also contradicts the rumor that Gauguin did it, though Barnaby says that it may have been a self-punishment for Van Gogh attacking his friend. It is true that Van Gogh took it to a brothel where he was a regular. However, he did not give it to a sex worker there, but a maid who also may have worked at one of his fave local spots, Café de la Guerre. Finally, the truth of his suicide. It was not an accidental murder by local schoolboys messing around with a gun. He even said himself on his deathbed that if his attempt failed, Van Gogh would have tried again. Though these two are the most popularly known and probably immediate examples of the tortured, mad, suffering artist myth, there are a couple other notable names on that list. As Neri says on Goya, one of our subjects in episode four, quote, in the paintings of Francisco José de Goya, feelings of loneliness, fear, and alienation have a prominent place and seem to reflect the painter's state of mind. Goya was often the victim of psychophysical depressions, which some experts attribute to Meniere's syndrome, while others have diagnosed him with paranoid dementia, end quote. Other big names on that list include Edgar Degas, Yayoi Kusama, Frida Kahlo, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Tracy Eamon, Ernest Hemingway, Sylvia Plath, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and many, many more. So the question boils down to, is mental illness or instability 
biologically, chemically, somehow tied to significant and innovative artists or art? Or is it just socially and historically associated? The biochemical answer is yes and no. <laughs> Correlations exist, not necessarily evidence of indivisible connection. So some of these studies that show a correlation include a 2015 study in Iceland which found, quote, people in creative professions were 25% more likely to carry gene variants that increase the risk of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, end quote. A 2013 Swedish study to measure links between creativity and any diagnosis of any mental health disorder, quote, found an association between creative professions and first-degree relatives of patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anorexia nervosa, and for siblings of patients with autism, end quote. Other reports show significant rates of mental illness among musicians, others attempted to assess mood disorders among sections of British creatives, and so on these studies go. However, we still have to say maybe with this correlation, as those studies can include some significant flaws. Alan describes the potential for bias in these studies by saying, quote, while these findings may seem compelling, the studies are certainly not without their critics. One persistent issue is the degree of the correlation found, with many arguing that the evidence is negligible and not in unequivocally indicative of any cause and effect relationship. The other major flaw is how creativity is defined in the studies. How does one identify and quantify creativity? End quote. Furthermore, in a study of 45 Nobel laureates, Albert Rothenberg found no links between creativity and mental illness. And those guys are probably the most creative people on the planet, so... There are some important potential explanations for these correlations, though. It's possible that people with mental illnesses gravitate towards these fields because of the greater time and project freedom and flexibility that is available in certain arts careers. It's also true that arts and creative activity participation is recognized as a legitimate and powerful form of therapy nowadays. So maybe it's helpful for artists who are dealing with mental health troubles to dedicate the majority of their time towards that sort of dual productivity, uh, a therapy and also a potential career. That being said, those kinds of uh, careers could be a negative thing for people struggling with mental illness because of the financial insecurity associated with some arts careers, the poor work-life balance risk because one would be setting their own time schedule, 
and the continuous self-criticism associated with assessing one's own work. Furthermore, we have to consider visibility. Maybe artists and musicians just talk about it more because they talk about emotions and human condition more on the whole than pretty much any other field, with the exceptions of maybe anthropology and psychology. There is some important counter evidence to these correlations. Ellis points to research done by the psychology department at Goldsmiths in cooperation with one MSc student, wherein the results, quote, were found to contradict existing stereotypes of the tortured artist suffering for their art, end quote. The head of the study, in fact, Professor Bhattacharya, stated that emotions and well-being are directly tied to feeling creative saying, quote, creativity happens more on days filled with energy, excitement, enthusiasm, and a clear sense of well-being, end quote. So it's possible that high mental well-being, a, a positive state, and high creativity are more so linked. Neath also points to their own personal experiences of healing through art therapies as well as the professional embrace of such techniques as uh, counter evidence to those Icelandic, Swedish, and other studies. Of course, as we've seen with the other two myths already, most of this is just stereotypes and expectations. Armitage points to a 2014 study published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, wherein Widenen van Tilburg, a psychologist at the University of Southampton led a research team, quote, who discovered that we perceive an artist's work as better if we are told they are of an eccentric nature, end quote. So the 38 students involved were all shown Van Gogh's sunflowers, but only half were told that he was suspected of self-mutilation. When asked to give a critique of the work afterwards, the researchers wrote, quote, As predicted, the art was evaluated more positively when Van Gogh's eccentric behavior was mentioned, end quote. So the results clearly show that the more bizarre or unusual or potentially mentally unwell an artist is perceived as, the more authentic they are perceived as. Armitage makes several strong points in that article, actually, showing notable exceptions to the quote-unquote rule of torture or suffering, especially when it comes to the dying early part, include such huge names as Dali, Picasso, Harper Lee, Jane Austen, Igor Stravinsky, and many others who are considered among the greats. He points out that art therapy is a thing, as I have, and summarizes basically the fact that the Van Goghs and the Munches are the exceptions, not the rule. Bonnie Maida describes the myth of the tortured, suffering, mad artist as a, quote, social contagion, end quote. It's more a result of conditions of many art sector jobs and popular belief than reality. 
He says, quote, creativity or creative careers do not in themselves cause mental health problems. The creative sectors are rife with poor conditions and high-pressured environments, not to mention low wages, long hours, unstable employment, particularly in times of austerity, and bullying that allows mental illness to remain hidden or seen as underperformance, end quote. So this myth really does more harm than good across creative sectors because it allows poor working conditions to be excused by the glamorizing of overworking oneself to the point of mental breakdown. When writing for the Huffington Post, Christopher Zara accidentally creates a perfect example of how the myth of the tortured, suffering artist can be harmful, especially in light of these poor working conditions and the realization that it's a fetishization of mental health struggles. He appears to present a somewhat interesting novel viewpoint that the suffering is not in vain. He writes, quote, The idea of the tortured artist has long been debated in our culture, but to me it always seemed a self-evident truth. Art is a reflection of humanity, and humanity's greatest virtue is its ability to overcome adversity. Why shouldn't that same adversity inspire our greatest art? End quote. So he's presenting a, a sort of everything happens for a reason attitude, searching for silver linings in the hardships of these artists and definitely presenting a belief that great art has to challenge you. And I do somewhat agree with that second half. The most memorable and impactful artworks often do challenge a viewer. But it's problematic in that it's still an attempt to justify unnecessary, in some cases, financial, social, and mental health troubles. So he had me in the first half, I'm not going to lie. But he closes out by saying that though many contemporary artists are really kind of over that stereotype, that's only because it hits too close to home. Saying, quote, the stereotype of the tortured artist as a long-suffering creative genius suggests that those two states are mutually exclusive. And that's an unsettling thought for anyone who practices a creative craft, end quote. So he basically blames the whole perpetuation of this stereotype as the artist's own fault, which I I really don't think I agree with that. (laughs) I know personally several artists who would have something to say about that opinion for sure. As you can probably tell by my giggling, by the end of this article, I definitely was not taking his viewpoint as seriously because as his final two lines, he says to leave suffering to the geniuses since that's what they do, which is not only just 
so ignorant, but also kind of rude. Rosemary Waff does a, a nice summary of what's going on here. Quote, While the connection between an artist's work and their mental state might seem immediately apparent, caution is always required. The interlacing of creativity with mental health conditions is both contested, as no medical study has ever proven a definitive link, and moreover, risks glamorizing or mythologizing suffering. We can also overly simplify an artist's work by suggesting their creative output is only the product of a troubled mind. So clearly, we must abandon this myth. It must change because we should not be perpetuating the idea that suffering is a requirement for success, regardless of one's field. As Neil puts it, we need to leave all of that behind and support the health and well-being of arts communities and their members. He says very effectively, quote, the idea that suffering is a necessity for greatness and artistic insight is not only wrong, but dangerous. Promoting the fetishization, oh man, I'm struggling with this word today, fetishization of mental health issues and encouraging self-destruction as a vital sacrifice behind the production of valid works, end quote. So because we don't necessarily want to encourage the glamorizing of suffering, even if it is in the pursuit of just, you know, mind-blowing, timeless portrayals of human condition, human emotion, we really need to be careful not to encourage self-destruction in pursuit of creating such art. In other words, we shouldn't make mental health struggles a part of somebody's legend. We should instead create better opportunities and resources for arts communities, artists, to be healthy, to experience well-being. All right, honeys, we made it! Another episode done! And I can't believe we're already at the end of the year! Crazy! Again, I hope your holidays have been wonderful. I hope you are feeling great, staying warm, all that jazz. And one last thing. I know New Year's resolutions can be a little controversial, especially because they often rely on unachievable, unspecific, or, you know, goals that don't necessarily end up planned out step by step and end up failing. So my auntie was talking to me, actually, about a different way to go about them, if you're interested. And so my resolutions go as such. I'm going to go to every opening of a museum exhibit in my town that I possibly can. I order from Imperfect Foods because, you know, environmentally friendly gal. And so I'm going to order one new fruit each week that I've never tried before that, you know, shows up on there. 
And last but not least, I'm going to recommit to my happiness calendars, which basically is just a a note each year that I keep in my phone and add one thing that made me happy each day of the year to. So on December 31st, I have 365 excellent things to smile about. Stay warm and stay informed, honeys, and I will talk to you all in the new year. Have a great one. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugno. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.